you know, if teenage girls, underage girls came in and they had sex partners who were over the four years age difference, um, we reported them. But looking back again, you know, I sent in so many reports of girls who were in statutory rape situations and never heard back on any of those reports. Welcome to Straight Talk on Life Issues, the podcast. I'm Victor Nieves, joined as always by Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. Brad, every human life is precious in God's eyes, but we in the pro-life movement have been told time and time again that the baby is just a quote-unquote clump of cells. Yeah, and, and that's one of the things that really angers me, Victor. You know, I've been around a long time working in the pro-life movement, and we have been combating these lies for decades. And as people's eyes are opened up, as Dr. Haywood and Ramona testify and come to the side of life, we are hearing these stories over and over again about how women were lied to, how vulnerable women were sold abortions they didn't want. And then those who were struggling with the aftermath of an abortion, they had no help and they had no desire to provide any help. And when Ramona, as she pointed out one time, uh, referred a woman to a pro-life pregnancy program to help women suffering the emotional impact of abortion, she was called on the carpet for that. And that is the ugly underbelly of the abortion industry, and they must be stopped. And Brad, that's what we're going to be doing today as we talk about the nasty underbelly of this dark abortion industry, an industry that you and I know this is a billion dollar industry with a lot of money at stake. And we'll talk about that a little bit later uh, with our fantastic guests. As you alluded to, joining us first is Dr. Haywood Robinson. He attended college and medical school in Southern California, where he received specialty training in family medicine that was at the Martin Luther King Charles R. Drew Medical Center in Los Angeles. In fact, him and his late wife, Noreen Johnson, they actually met as residents at the medical center. And while there, they learned to perform the abortion procedure. It wasn't until his salvation in 1986 that he decided to turn his life toward pro-life work, and it's been a passion ever since for him. We're also joined by Ramona Trevino. She was the manager of a Planned Parenthood abortion facility in Sherman, Texas. Similar story to Dr. Haywood. That was until 2011 when God used the prayers, the public witness of a 40 Days for Life campaign to move her to leave her job and reclaim her walk with Christ. In fact, when Ramona resigned from her Planned Parenthood location, the center actually went out of business. She's now a wife, a mother, a grandmother, and an adamant pro-life activist. Dr. Haywood and Ramona, I want to welcome you both to the show. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for taking part in this very important program and lending your voice to the ears of our listeners. Haywood, could you tell us a little bit about your story? Thank you for having me on your podcast here. It's a blessing to be called by the Lord and to be a believer and to be part of uh, Jesus's movement because, you know, he came to bring us light and to bring it life and to bring it more abundantly. But the Reader's Digest presentation or look at my story is a guy born and raised in Southern California, inner city, lower socioeconomic area, who was blessed to uh, live in a safe home. Uh, not the best education, but good enough for me to learn to love science and math. And at age four or five, I was called to be a physician. I know it was the Lord because I didn't have any educated folks and higher education. 
in my family, my mother did finish high school. I believe my father finished the eighth grade and went through the normal undergraduate medical school and residency training. In residency training, I did learn to do the dilation and curatage procedure, which is also used with women who have had uh, miscarriages to remove remaining tissue from a miscarriage or, or what we call a spontaneous abortion. But that same procedure can be used to perform what we call a, a surgical abortion in a normal pregnancy. I learned to do that procedure at Martin Luther King Hospital where I was training in family practice residency. And it just so happens my late wife, Dr. Noreen Johnson, was one of the physicians who helped train me to do that. At that time, I was not a believer, but the facts are I did know that life did indeed begin at conception. Scientifically, that's very, very well proven. But once you get caught up in something that's evil, and this is what I speak about and warn people about, it's very easy to start to deny the truth, even when you may not be a believer. But the enemy will, through the love of money and and through basically making you deny or question certain basic truths that you're taking the life of a preborn child. So for a number of years, my wife, Noreen, and I performed abortions in Southern California. We moved to College Station, Texas in the late 80s, where we pretty much stopped doing abortions. And a couple of years later, the Lord saved us. He took us from darkness to light. He opened our eyes to the spiritual things. And we know that this is really a spiritual battle. This is not scientific. This is not sociologic or political. Uh, this is about good versus evil. So he took us from abortionists to pro-life warriors. And for the past 30 Five years or so, I've been blessed to say I've been part of the pro-life movement and being able to work with people uh, like you that I'm sharing this podcast with. And just as a postscript to that, uh, we were blessed to release a book this June, The Scalpel and the Soul, which I just happen to have a copy here, uh, was released in June of this year. And it's Noreen Johnson and Haywood Robinson's story about how the Lord can indeed transform you, transforming you in spirit and transforming you by the renewing of your mind so that you can go from darkness to light, from baby killer to pro-life warrior. And I'm just blessed to say there is victory in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Um, Ramona, can you briefly tell us your story? Yeah. So I was pregnant at 16. I had my daughter at 17. And uh, I was in a very abusive relationship with the father of my daughter for about eight years until God gave me the grace to, to have the courage and just the self-worth to leave that relationship. I was, uh, I remarried and uh, my now husband is 17 years, but I think because of lacking the healing that was needed, uh, it was very easy for me to accept a position working for Planned Parenthood. And I think the what makes it a little different from other stories is that the Planned Parenthood that I worked for was a referral facility. So it was a family planning clinic. And a lot of people uh, get involved in those referral facilities because they separate themselves from the family planning and the abortion. And I did that. I tried to justify what I was doing based on the fact that abortions weren't taking place at my facility. And I accepted the position of the clinic director there and worked for three years as the facility manager and really justified my position on the basis that abortions weren't taking place. I thought that I was helping women. I especially thought that I was helping women like my former self who had been pregnant as a teen and was in an abusive relationship. My goal was really to prevent 
those pregnancies, those unplanned pregnancies, and especially uh, pregnancies in situations that were were not ideal. And I didn't really realize that I was complicit in abortion and that I was helping facilitate an abortion until, of course, by the grace of God, um, the Holy Spirit started to move within me and open my eyes to the reality of what I was involved in. And ultimately, it was 40 days for life through prayer and vigil and fasting that I was able to finally take a leap of faith and leave my position working for Planned Parenthood. And not only was I converted, but three months later, the facility that I once managed also shut down permanently. Dr. Haywood, you mentioned that you wanted to become a physician since you were four or five years old. But now no young boy wants to grow up to become an abortionist. That's just not really in the, in the scheme of things. And it probably wasn't for you either. What was it that flipped a switch in your mind that allowed you to do the abortions? Well, what I experienced is what I wrote about in the book also, and that is the enemy is, is very slick. He's very incremental in the way you're seduced into what he wants you to do. First is that you see an abortion. And what I tell young people, don't even go into the abortion room. There's no need to really watch an abortion video. The eyes are the window to the soul. It's just like me telling a young person, let's just have you watch just a little bit of pornography. It's not going to hurt, but you need to know a little bit what it's like because it's one of those things that happens in medicine and you need to know about it. Well, so you get exposed. The eyes are the window to the soul. So the first seed in your eyes are where you get most of your sensory perception. 70 to 80% of it is through your eyes. It goes into your central nervous system. Those images are there forever. So you may say, oh, wow, that looks a little, that's right. Maybe I have a little bit of cerebral queasiness, so to speak. Well, the next thing you watch it again. And you know, you notice that maybe it's not so bad. It's easier to watch the next time. And then the next time, well, then we have a saying in medicine, you see one, you do one, you teach one. So now you're the young intern who's been there with the faculty member, your, your higher level residents, physicians. Oh, well, Dr. Robinson, you sit here and we're going to talk you through the procedure. And the next thing you know, you're sitting there going through a procedure that maybe six months ago you would have thought, how can I do this? So at first, it's, it, 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 it goes in your mind, it's discussed, then it goes in your eyes, and then the next thing you know, you're following the example of people who, well, you respect these people. I respect the faculty members and the residents, and you lose the true perspective of why you're there. As you said, Brad, no young person goes into medicine to become an abortionist. I was on the admissions committee of our medical school for more than 20 years. You're never going to hear an applicant say, well, I want to go into obstetrics and gynecology or family medicine so I can become the greatest abortionist in the world. No, abortion not only kills the child, but it also has a progressive degenerative effect on the providers, the nurses, the doctors, because that same dehumanization, that same desensitization process that I went through be able to kill the child is happening to the doctor. That's why so many of these doctors have drug abuse issues, alcoholism, horrible family situations, 
because the horror, the pain, and this is this is something that you, you can't deny. You can only be involved with this type of thing so long before it starts to bubble up and affect the rest of your life. So lots of these guys and men and women who are involved with the abortion cartel are absolutely miserable. And the money situation, which entices you also, nothing becomes enough to take away that inner pain of that dehumanization and the reality that you're killing babies and selling body parts. Well, people go into medicine, of course, to heal and to save lives. How did you feel that abortion fit into that part of medicine? Again, you, you, you swallow the lies. It's all about lies. So you listen to the lies as well. This a woman should have a right to control her own, you know, reproductive abilities. You know, this child would not have been cared for, probably would have been abused. It's better that this child be be aborted. Or, for instance, the children who are born with maybe a, a chromosomal abnormality like a Downs baby. Oh, well, this child is going to have enormous medical problems. It'd be better that, you know, you can get rid of this child. Just go ahead and have another one that's going to be normal. But, you know, people have to realize about 15% of the women who abort their first child can't get pregnant again. I've had a number of women. How horrible it is when a woman realizes that the child that they've aborted is the only one they were going to have. And what's happened to us that we don't have the compassion and the sensitivity to want to welcome all children, regardless as if they were Down's baby, how is it we can be so tolerant to so many other off-culture, what we would probably call abnormal type of behaviors, but when a, when a person who has an extra chromosome, we want to kill them. And let me tell you, unfortunately, what's happening in medicine these days, when a family gets an untoward diagnosis, such as a Down's diagnosis, these families are pressured and bullied every time they come to the prenatal visit. Do you, even though they've made it clear on previous visits, we don't want to abort our child. They are bullied and bullied and bullied to the end. And it's a horrible thing to see. And it's the greatest betrayal of trust that physicians have made to our society to become the, the executioners for Roe v. Wade to kill all these millions upon millions of babies who should be alive today. The first babies that were killed during the, during the legalization of, uh, of abortions in 73, those children would, you know, would be in their 50s, in their 50s now, enjoying life and contributing to society. So it's been a horrible holocaust, but this is a global thing. Abortion is not new because otherwise it would not have been addressed millennia ago in the Hippocratic Oath. It's just that we're dealing now in a, in a culture that looks at it as a luxury and an amenity and almost a badge of honor because you have people, these celebrities, about shouting your abortion and being proud that you kill your child. Dr. Haywood, you mentioned the pressure in the industry. How would you say that the medical industry specifically pressures doctors into becoming abortionists? Well, it's a kind of a passive pressure because from academia to organized medicine, and I'm not going to name any organizations, the whole alphabet soup of organized medicine and all of academia, and we know academia is very, very liberal, they consider abortion medicine. And you'll see that as said, like abortion is healthcare, abortion is medicine. So it's really not pressure. It's just that it's almost an attitude, well, if you don't believe abortion is, is medicine and abortion is healthcare, there's something wrong with you. Now, 
if you want to make it an answer to your question a little bit more illustrative, all we need to do is look at our neighbor to the north, Canada. In Canada, if you don't agree to be involved with abortions as a resident or a medical student, they can actually kick you out of those programs. So you have no choice. In our country, we still have a right to conscience. If you don't believe that you want to be an abortion because of your faith, we can still do that in the United States. But there's a hesitancy uh, to not be involved in this because, you know, these people write your evaluations. They grade you. A lot of this is subjective. Now, what I'm thankful to say is most hospitals now are not training doctors to do uh, abortions. Now that we have a, a more formidable foe, which is the chemical abortion, there's not the demand for the doctors to perform the surgical abortions. But now we have a situation where it's a lot harder to fight the medical or chemical abortion. But so it's more like a, a passive pressure, just like if you don't agree with all these gender issues, now there's, it's institutionalized in, in administrations and all the, these schools that if you don't drink the punch and speak the lingo, you'll, you'll be penalized. So it's easier kind of to just go along, to get along, so to speak, in a quasi-passive way. But, you know, we have got to stand up if you're a believer you have just got to stand up and be a Christian first uh, and a medical doctor or a medical student second. Well, Dr. Haywood, as a former abortionist, thankfully, tell us what it was like performing abortions. Basically, you you separate yourself from it. Think of a, a regular Saturday morning. Noreen and I would get up and go to the abortion facility. And I'll tell you right up front. Nobody, at least I didn't, enjoy doing abortions. Who would enjoy killing babies? But I was really doing it for what? You do it for the money. I wasn't doing yep. it to help women, right? Who does an abortion to help a woman? Well, that you may say you're doing it, but no, abortions don't help women. You're doing it for yourself. You're doing it because the money is, is easy. You get up, you get into the facility. Now, we've heard the other side say things like, well, abortion is something that's a choice between the doctor and the patient. Well, that's really not the case because the first time that the doctor sees the patient is when they walk into the exam room or the procedure room to perform the abortion. And you may not even give that person eye contact. You walk in, you mumble something like, well, I'm Dr. Robinson, boom, boom. This will take about 10 minutes. You go in there, bam, 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 and you're off to the next abortion. And the way it works in an abortion mill, you always have another room where the next abortion is getting ready to be performed. So you just go from room to room, just like a, a conveyor belt. The woman is taken into a recovery room where she really doesn't recover. They may give her a, a graham cracker and some juice, and then they kick her out. And of course, they've taken her money before the procedure was done. So it's very desensitized, dehumanized, depersonalized, and I've had the opportunity since I've been and working with the ministry I work with now, 40 Days for Life, where I've looked at the faces of the women as they come out from getting an abortion and the amount of, well, they're still feeling physical pain, but it's so painful to look at the pain that you see in their faces after they have lost their child and had their child taken away. No normal woman really wants to harm their child. It goes against the natural physiology and the natural behavior of any animal, matter of fact, to harm their young. So abortion is totally unnatural and damages a woman deeply. 
when they lose their child, particularly when it's their fault. But it's it's a horrible way to, and you know, you can't wait to get out of there and move on. It's not a fun place to work, really. How did you dispose of the baby's bodies? Well, that's an interesting question. A lot of these facilities basically just had garbage disposals or it was sent into the basically the same place where garbage would go. Now, laws, certain laws were passed where they had to be disposed of as quote-unquote hazardous waste, but lots of times these facilities, you know, they were set up in a strip mall or whatever. They didn't have the appropriate or didn't use the appropriate hazardous waste or, or collection services that they should be using. It's um, really a horrible thing to to see. So many times, very inappropriate disposal, but also, as we saw covered in undercover videos in these later term abortions, the baby parts are harvested and sold uh, on, a, on, a, on a secondary market. And that's, that's a, another very evil side of abortion is the selling of the baby parts. Were you ever asked to change your method of doing the abortion so that the body parts would be more sellable? Uh, no, I being a, a family physician really didn't get involved with the later term abortions. The obstetrician, gynecologist, it, it, it takes a, what's the best way to put it, a different, a higher skill level. I was not involved with the with those, those second trimester and later abortions, but you know, our audience should be aware that abortion is indeed legal up until, you know, delivery, basically. Well, we're told that the body parts of children had to be reassembled at times to make sure that everything had been taken out of the uterus. Did you ever have to do that, or did you witness that being done? Well, uh, I've done that. Sometimes the, the nurse will, or whoever collects the specimen from the suction container, will in the lab try to account for as many of the pieces as possible because when you leave things there it's going to cause possible infection and bleeding but yeah either the doctor but many times nurses or assistants will go through the basically it's debris it's the debris of a destroyed macerated child when you were doing that piecing that child back together what went through your mind well that's where i think the largest level of denial goes you're you know it's a hand that you're looking at you know it's an arm and skull but you're looking at it i think it's almost a, an anatomy uh, inventory rather than a destroyed human being so it's more or less just putting the pieces together kind of like a puzzle but still in denial that you just mutilated a human being did you ever see the toll that abortion was taking on your staff's minds and, and how they were able to do their job? Well, you know, it's interesting. Sometimes we would have a little discussion about, oh, wow, that poor lady, she was so hurt. She wanted to know if the baby was a boy or a girl. And you go, oh, yeah, that was sad. But then in the next few minutes, you're back on doing, you know, you, you don't spend very much time at all on that. But yeah, there are those brief times where you kind of go, oh, wow. She really didn't want to do that. And we knew that a lot of these women were pressured into getting abortions, that there were guys or other associates out right outside the reception room forcing these women to come in and get abortions. You had mentioned uh, earlier that uh, doing abortions is a very lucrative business. How good is the money doing an abortion? 
Well, back when I was doing them, of course, it was less expensive. You a first trimester abortion could obtain for two hundred, three hundred dollars, and the way it would work, the physician would get half the money, and the facility would get the other half. Oh, but now, but you know, now it's much more. And again, we need to remind our audience that you know about you know eighty percent of the abortions now in the first trimester are chemical abortions. So it's a little bit less expensive, and unfortunately, it's a harder fight because now these women are suffering through an abortion at home by themselves, complications that you know no one is seeing, and it's a horrible experience. I think for them that they that they're going through to be so isolated and told that well, this is just a do-it-yourself abortion. Now it's just a little personal experience. The horror that these women must go through during those uh, days of this abortion process with a chemical abortion. It's, it's horrible. Well, Dr. Haywood, you referenced earlier that chemical abortion is cutting into the business, if you will, of abortions performing surgical abortions. Does the pay for those who are involved in the process, giving the woman a pill, is that much less compensation for them now? I think it's probably a little bit less, but see, we've got to recognize we have another component on the black market. People are selling the abortion pills on the street. We even saw it at one of our 40 Days for Life campaigns, a, a lady literally right on the street saying she had abortion pills. I believe she may have even been giving them away. We have uh, human traffickers that have their own supply of the uh, abortion pill that they can give their workers. You know, we have uh, the human traffickers, the prostitution rings. And we also have had situations where the men are giving the women the abortion pill and a drink or whatever without their knowledge. So the market is being flooded. There's probably less money, less of a lucrative environment. But I want to remind the audience, yes, we still are having late-term abortion. We're still having second trimester abortions, but probably an overwhelming larger number now of the first trimester abortions, but with sources of pills from various routes. Well, thank you. Now, Ramona, you've been so patient while we've been discussing <laughs> things medical. I'd like to ask you this. What made you decide to go to work for Planned Parenthood? Well, I mean, Dr. Haywood mentions the deception, and I think that's part of it. I think a lot of people do get involved in Planned Parenthood because they are deceived in one way or another. For me, I was looking at it more as an opportunity, uh, an opportunity to manage my own clinic to put that um, on my resume and then move on to other things down the road. But I, I think once you get involved in the abortion industry in any way, it is not so easy to get out. And it's it's interesting in hindsight to look back during that time and realize that, you know, I may have had intentions to leave eventually, right? Once I kind of gained some experience and um, really I was just always fascinated with healthcare. My background was always just in healthcare in general. Uh, and so that's really what I thought I was doing. I thought I was involved in healthcare. And once you get involved in Planned Parenthood and you're inside the, that industry, you realize that it's easy to, to adopt the mentalities and the ideologies that people have inside those walls. And it's not as easy to get out. So when I look back and I realize what a grace 
it was and what a miracle it was for God to pull me out of that organization. And in really a short amount of time by comparison uh, to others who have left the abortion industry, I find it just miraculous that I was able to leave so quickly, you know, sadly, three years too late, you know, I, it would have been best if I'd never been there at all. But, you know, talk to ex-workers who'd been working there for, you know, who had worked in the abortion industry for 17 years in 10 years and so on. And by comparison, I think, wow, three years is not so bad, right? But I could see where I could have easily stayed and climbed the ladder uh, and uh, and probably gone deeper into that darkness because I did see myself changing from the person that I was when I first started versus the person that I had become as time went on. And Ramona, how do Planned Parenthood employees respond when they're faced with, for example, instances of sex trafficking, statutory rape, incest, these kinds of circumstances? Yeah, sex trafficking was one of those moments where it was a catalyst that actually led to me ultimately leaving and opening my eyes to Planned Parenthood. So there was a lot of things, a lot of pieces of the puzzle that had to come together before I could finally see that I needed to get out of there. But um, we actually had a, a moment in 2011 when Live Action had uh, released an expose, an undercover investigation exposing Planned Parenthood workers willing to aid in a bed and underage sex trafficking. And we attended a so-called training uh, of staff on how to, you know, identify this, how to report it. And so when I attended this quote unquote training, I thought that's what I was going to receive. Right. And it turned out that the training was really training us as employees, how to not get caught by these uh, pro-life undercover investigators and, and that sort of thing. But I was also mostly shocked by the lack of reaction uh, by my fellow employees and coworkers. They didn't seem to react to that the way that I did. And, and I was really surprised by that. Uh, it just seemed like everyone was on, you know, on board with Planned Parenthood's training of, you know, this is what these pro-lifers are doing and this is what we should do to make sure that we're not being recorded and videotaped and that sort of thing or entrapped. That was the that was kind of that eye-opening moment for me where I realized that Planned Parenthood is not who they say they are and they're not about helping women. And so, you know, being on the inside and having people who told me, Ramona, you know, we don't put the ages, the correct ages of the boyfriends or the sex partners if it's more than four years, because we don't want to have to go through the trouble of reporting this sort of thing. You know, just realizing that that's the environment that I was in. It's, it's pretty disgusting. Um, at the time, I went along with it because, again, you know, I was more about self-preservation and wanting my job. So the end game here is, correct me if I'm wrong, Ramona, is that you guys didn't care if it was sex trafficking or statutory rape or whatever. You were just training yourselves on how not to get caught. Absolutely. Yeah, we had a reporting practice in place uh, in which, you know, if teenage girls, underage girls came in and they had sex partners who were, you know, over the four years age difference, um, we reported them. But looking back again, you know, I, I sent in so many reports of girls who were in statutory rape situations and never heard back on any of those reports. And so now I wonder, I look back and I go, okay, well, you know, what fax number were we sending this in? Was it a, a legitimate fax number to the Child Protective Services? Was it a legitimate number to any type of authority? Because we never received any phone calls or investigations regarding any of those situations. And so never. I really never, never in never. the three years that I was there. No, ever. And so I, I wondered if that was happening elsewhere. I knew I knew it wasn't happening where I worked, but I didn't know if it was happening elsewhere, you know. Um, so it was clear that uh, that it wasn't something that was important to Planned Parenthood because at the end of the day, it's about money and it's about numbers. 
Tell me about your very first encounter with a woman who wanted to have an abortion. Oh, yeah. So I actually tell this in, in my my book that came out many years ago. Um, and it's something that I'll never forget because I accepted my position thinking that my hands would be clean from abortion, that I wouldn't, it wouldn't be something that would impact me at all. And I was probably on the job less than a couple of weeks when I was there alone. The staff had gone out to lunch and I had a young, a young woman who was college age who came into the facility for a pregnancy test. She was with her boyfriend and the father of her baby. And so I provided her pregnancy test and actually congratulated her on the positive pregnancy test because that's what you do, right? As a normal person, <laughs> as you say, congratulations, you're pregnant. And I had actually failed to see that she had marked on her intake form that she wanted a referral for abortion. And so when I told her that she was pregnant, she began crying. And I looked and noticed that on the intake form that she she had wanted a referral for abortion. And in that moment, you know, it's it kind of plays out very quickly. Um, you know, your thoughts are racing and you're, I remember just kind of thinking, how do I get out of this? You know, how do I give her this referral, do my job that, you know, do what's asked of me, but also keep my hands clean of this. Because, you know, I always say I was akin to Pontius Pilate. I wanted to wash my hands of it and put this on the woman who was choosing because at the end of the day, right, that's what we talk about. This is a woman's right to choose. And, and, you know, interestingly enough, I, I didn't begin Planned Parenthood um, identifying as a pro-abortion person. I, was of the mentality uh, that so many people have, which is their pro-choice, right? And we we don't think about what that means. You know, what does it mean to be pro-choice? You know, I was of the mindset that, you know, I personally wouldn't have an abortion. Um, I didn't think that it was the right quote unquote choice, right? But I always believe that a woman had a right to choose for herself and what was right for her may not be right for me and what may be wrong for her. You know, a very relativistic attitude about it all. And, and so when these women were making these choices, I wanted to put that on them. And so in this instance, you know, I thought to myself, you know, this is her decision. I'm going to wash my hands of this. I knew this was a baby. I've always known that life began at conception as a teen mom. You know, I knew from the moment my pregnancy test was positive that that was my baby. That was my child. And uh, and, th and that didn't change going into working for Planned Parenthood. But there's such cognitive dissonance, you know, involved in this issue. And, you know, like Dr. Haywood expressed, you know, the lies that we buy into. And that was part of the lie that I had bought into that this was a woman's right to choose. Whether that choice is right or wrong is not up to me. And so when this young girl chose that abortion, I referred her, I gave her the information, I sent her out the door. And the reaction that I had after surprised me, I'd gone into my office and shut the door and I began to cry. You know, I always tell people, I think that's the moment I sold my soul. And I knew it, you know, because I wanted to keep my job. I wanted that job title. I wanted the opportunity that came with it. I felt important in my role and I wanted to prove myself in my role as a clinic manager. And, and so that I saw as more important than the lives that I was complicit in helping end. And then it became easier after that to refer. And that's the slippery slope that we find ourselves on oftentimes is, you know, we commit that one sin and then sin, you know, becomes easier and easier after that. And so, yeah, it was, it was really sad to see myself change. My heart became hardened and it became so easy at, after that to, to keep referring for abortions and not thinking, a, you know, twice about the innocent lives that were being lost. Well, working for an abortion kingpin like Planned Parenthood, were there any little quirky do's and don'ts while you were working there? Um, one of the things that we would, wouldn't say is that we didn't want to call 
of course, refer to any pregnancy as a baby. Um, it was always the product of conception or um, things of that nature. Never refer to or humanize, right? Humanize the baby in the womb. Is there a story that stands out in your mind while working at Planned Parenthood? I think there's lots of stories. I think the one for me that still that I still think about all these years later is the story of a 15-year-old girl who had come in with her father to get STD testing and not knowing whether or not the man who had infected this young child um, was truly her father or not. That still that still bothers me all these years later. Any other stories that you can point to? Yeah, I mean, I like again. I think there's lots of examples. I think one of the other ones that is really telling is a, as a woman who was having post-traumatic, post-abortion trauma after her abortion, and coming into Planned Parenthood and seeking our help for some sort of psychological help after her abortion, and we didn't offer her anything. We didn't have anything to refer to her. That was for me very eye-opening as well. And we were actually. I was actually reprimanded for not, well, not reprimanded, but I was scolded, you know, for having a referral for a local post-abortion healing retreat that was at a church. I was told not to refer her or any other woman to the church for post-abortion healing. And it was very sad because this woman was very depressed, very distraught, and we had no resources to offer her whatsoever. They don't want to acknowledge that there is hurt and harm psychologically at all. Not at all. And not only that, I was told, you know, the reason that we didn't refer to this church organization is because they would be judgmental of this woman, that they were going to judge her and shame her for having had the abortion in the first place. And this question I'd like to ask of both of you, and, and you may have answered it previously, but what are some of the specific lies that people buy into that you guys had to be part of your sales presentation? Well, you've covered a few of them just to, you know, reiterate, and that is, it's really not a baby. And that's why you don't use those terms. You would never say to a, a client at one of the cartel outlets, be it Planned Parenthood or wherever, that uh, this is your baby or that this is a life that's lost. They always think of it in terms of either products of conception, which is just an organic set of tissue, products of conception, or they look at it from the point of view as the procedure, an exercise of reproductive rights. So you're not even dealing with the person. You're just dealing with the procedure. And you try to make people believe that the Supreme Court was right when they said that it's it's a woman's right of, of, of privacy to control her body. It's They always say, my body, my choice. But notice it's singular. They never recognize that it's two bodies. You see, they it's my body, my choice. Well, wait a second. Hold on here. Can you at least acknowledge that your body is holding another body and that other body is really just wanting 40 weeks of lease space so it can get the heck out of you and have its own life? We don't look at it as sexual intercourse having the possible outcome of another human being. And once you make the decision to have sex, well, then you have to deal with the possible subsequent. It's not a complication. It's just a simple consequence. It happens. And now that you've done that, take the responsibility and don't kill the evidence. Don't kill the baby. The baby didn't do anything wrong. You know, the other thing they talk about, why force a woman to have a baby, you know, when she's, when she's being raped? It's almost they want you to believe that an abortion is treatment for a woman who becomes pregnant due to a sexual assault. That is 
absolutely ridiculous. Think about that for a moment. Let's just say you broke your leg and you get to the emergency room and the emergency room doctor says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to break your other leg so that you can get better quicker. An abortion in of itself is a traumatic experience. The baby, and I think all of us here on this panel, have been exposed to a number of women, I have, who have, have children after they were raped. The pregnancy and the delivery of that baby actually are therapeutic to the trauma that they've experienced through the sexual assault. A child should never, ever be forced to pay the penalty for their parents, for their father's sin, for their crime. The child is innocent. Every single, there are so many famous people and people who are alive now who are so thankful that their mother didn't get rid of them. An abortion for rape is nothing more than putting gasoline on a fire. They need love. They need nurturing. They need support. And the man needs to get exactly what's coming to them. Uh, good point. And, and the women that I've talked to, Dr. Haywood, who have chosen abortion after rape, have usually said that they felt the abortion felt like they were raped twice. And, and your analogy of the broken leg is exactly spot on to that. Ramona, do you have anything else to add to this point? Yeah, I think the the first lie that I was subjected to was that um, the lies that, that Margaret Sanger always perpetuated, which was every child should be a wanted child, right? And so we bought into that. We bought into that lie that somehow because a baby was unplanned, that that baby was not wanted. And if the baby didn't come at a right time or a perfect scenario or situation, that that it was best for those babies to be aborted. The other the other thing that that was perpetuated in just our training, I remember in our training manual was it spoke about how abortion has existed since the beginning of time. And so because, you know, this idea that abortion has always existed and therefore it should be okay, right? Um, it's like saying, okay, well, murder has always existed, so it should be okay, right? And all the other things that we could think of as an analogy to that, you know, theft, you know, has always existed and it should be okay. But, you know, just this ongoing, perpetuation of the lies that only children who are wanted, who are planned should exist. And then of course, you know, having been in a family planning facility in which we promoted and sold birth control, I think that's the other biggest lie that we buy into in society. These young women were taking their birth control pills and it fails. Um, we know that because we see women who have been able to conceive while they're contraception, contracepting, because there is a failure right there and it does happen. And so when the contraception fails and Planned Parenthood knows that it will, then abortion becomes the obvious solution to that failure. And they um, they trust come back to Planned Parenthood in which they first obtain that birth control to come back and seek the abortion after. And so again, you know, we, we saw that time and time again, that we were selling this lie to these young women, especially, you know, teenage girls, the majority of the people that I saw were not women, but children, 15, 16, 17 year old girls. That was the majority of clients. I say clients, not patients. That was the majority of the clients that we, that we saw. And these were young girls who were living promiscuous lifestyle. And, and of course, what you do is you throw birth control at them and you let them go out and continue this lifestyle that we know is harmful to them. That's the lie 
that I saw over and over and over again, that somehow this was empowering them, uh, when in all reality, it was hurting them and harming them emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, you know, returning with reinfections, being reinfected with STDs over and over again. And then ultimately, when that birth control fails, they come back to us to seek an abortion. One other big lie that you'll hear from the globalists, and that is there's too many people on the planet and to save Mother Earth when all you need to do is look at the fertility rates of the United States, of Europe, of Mexico. I mean, we have horrible fertility rates, many of which are not sustainable for the population. The only area on the planet that has a decent fertility rate is the continent of Africa. So it's another lie that we got to have abortion before too many people fall off the planet and the edges of the earth, you know, not enough food to feed the people. It's interesting you should bring up that depopulation issue because my co-host, uh, Victor Nieves, has done some research, considerable research on that. And we are putting up an interactive uh, section on our new website that shows the countries that are beneath population levels and what the countries are doing <laughs> to the extent some are doing some really crazy things to try to increase their population. Ramona, you had mentioned the lie that abortion has always been here and utilized, so it's okay. Supreme Court Justice Alito, in his majority opinion in the Dobbs case, took on that lie and laid out the history of abortion and countries' uh, positions of it, namely America, to uh, reveal that lie as exactly what it is a lie. So what I'd like to ask both of you now is what are each of you doing to educate people on the abortion industry or cartel? Well, Ramon and I are both working with 40 Days for Life, which started right here where I live in College Station, Texas, a very simple model where it start, started here. I was at the first prayer vigil in front of the Planned Parenthood facility and Many people in the pro-life movement have seen the movie Unplanned with Abby Johnson, the director, had left. And what we do is we stand and pray. Babies are saved, facilities are closed, and facility workers find other work. And prayers of the righteous availeth much. And it started here in College Station. And when we have uh, two 40-day prayer campaigns a year, and we're all around the planet now, Mexico, Canada, South America, Europe, and we have uh, almost 700 prayer campaigns that are working, and we're seeing those results all around the world. Now, what we do is being on staff, we travel to the various campaigns where we speak to those that are praying. We also speak to various audiences about life. And part of what we're encouraged to do is be on podcasts and programs like yours. And also, I've gone to our medical school here and represented life. Any opportunity that I get to stand for life and stand for what traditionally we stood for just up until a few decades ago, what we're, what we're discussing here is very recent history relative to what modern medicine was about. The Hippocratic Oath was written in 1200 BC that forbid abortion. So what we're seeing is a, is a nuance that's fairly new. And we have to, it is not an awakening. It's not evolution. It's degeneration. 
Ramon, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I just wanted to uh, second what Dr. Haywood said. I've been blessed to have joined the 40 Days for Life national team as the outreach director and for over a decade now have been, you know, working to just be a voice wherever <laughs> anyone will hear me and listen to me, right? Whether that is, you know, speaking engagements or on radio or any type of interviews on print. But now having joined the national team, it's a blessing to be able to travel more, to be able to visit vigils, to share my testimony and my own personal witness of having been prayed out of the abortion industry. And I think that's a big part of this too, because there's this part of the abortion industry that no one really considers to be a threat. And that is these referral facilities. And so being able to share my testimony and give that insider information to people is a way in which I can help uh, further the cause and open people's eyes to the side of Planned Parenthood that kind of gets a pass by a lot of people. And so I think just given that opportunity to speak at conferences and visit vigils and travel the country and um, just really be in the grassroots, connect with people on a personal level. Um, it's been phenomenal and such a blessing. And, you know, again, just being courageous enough to be outspoken, whether that be in my personal circle or even on social media. I think that's also important as well, because so many people are involved on social media platforms. And so it's another tool that we can utilize to do outreach as well and just speak online life and be um, defenders of life. You are both uniquely positioned to impact others by where you've come from. So I'd like to ask you to address different demographics of individuals. I'd like both of you to respond to these questions. What would you like to say to a woman who's considering having an abortion? Do you like me to take that, Dr. Haywood? Sure. Go ahead. Sure. Okay. You're, you're a mother. <laughs> you can both answer. Well, one of the things that I've learned um, just in being in Planned Parenthood and leaving Planned Parenthood is the really the power of storytelling and the way in which we can connect to people just with our own stories. And so what I've learned just through counseling other women in my own circles, people who've come out to reach out to me personally that I've known who are abortion minded is just simply listening to women first. That's number one. That's key. Listening to them, knowing where they come from, where what position they're in. I think so oftentimes we as pro-lifers want to jump in and we want to tell them, you know, don't do this. And, you know, we get overzealous, but we don't stop and we don't just listen and hear where these women have been, what they've gone through, what they've dealt with. And so I think I come from a very unique position, not necessarily unique, but unique in that not only was I a teen mom in an abusive relationship and who was able to choose life despite my own upbringing and the background that I had as a child. Uh, my father was an alcoholic. You know, my parents weren't wealthy at all. I was the perfect candidate for an abortion at 16. And I chose life and being able to just share my own personal testimony with women and tell them, you know, I've been in your shoes. I've been in your position where I was a perfect, you know, candidate for abortion. I was in a crisis pregnancy and, um, you know, being able to share those lived experiences and then also being able to say, you know, I've been on the other side of this. I know what the abortion industry is all about. I know that you um, are nothing but a number to the abortion industry. Um, and just telling women the reality and the truth about abortion and knowing also so many women who've had abortions who have lived with the regret and the pain and the suffering for all of their lives, um, being able to share those testimonies as well. I think when, again, it goes back to being able to connect with people on a human level, being able to share stories. Those have the biggest impact on women who 
who are going through abortion and I think, or considering abortion. And I think it also is one of those situations where it's a case by case basis, but that's why listening to these women is so important to hear them, to hear where they're coming from um, so that you can touch upon those lived experiences that you have had. I think that has the greatest impact on abortion minded women. Yes, I think that's very good, Ramona. What I found, first off, I kind of punted to you. I said, you're the you're the mom. But unfortunately, we men have gotten the pass on this and we have abdicated our responsibility as, as men, as fathers, uh, to allow this Holocaust to go forth. A man is supposed to be a provider and a protector for the family, not facilitating the death of their children. But Ramona, you hit it on the head. The first thing is listening. And what I I happen to be listening to a man who for decades has been in the pro-life movement, and he's a pastor, but he's traveled to Africa all around dealing with the issue. And he says, you know, I've kind of boiled it down to a couple of questions. And first, what I found that when you're going to get into that encounter, there's usually a lot of emotion that you've got pent up in you. What am I going to say? Blah, 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 blah. What am I gonna, you know, you're kind of trying take a deep breath recognize that this woman is the one who's wound up like a spring and she's probably being pressured. So you've got to be the kind of spring releaser, tension releaser, and you get to them, you get some eye contact. And this guy that I was saying, he had basically two questions you start with to get them to speak. He said, you ask them, how can I help you? Is there any way I can help you? Get them to start talking. No one's listened to them. They've been told what to do. They're the ones that are being pressured. Tell me your story and let them start opening up. And what they'll see is that you're genuinely interested in hearing what they have. Once they kind of get some of that pressure off, some of that steam off, the next thing, they're now set up for the next question, which is simply, well, you you identify with it, you reinforce and say, now that you've told me that, you know, what can I do to help you? But you have to be sincere asking that question, but you also have to be prepared to tell them now, what are some of the things you can do to help them? Well, you know, at my church, we have these resources available. I know of a pregnancy resource center I can take you to, and we can work out. You possibly getting an ultrasound to see your baby showing you that we've got resources for baby clothing, et cetera. We, you know, maybe you can tell them about a, a maternity home and tell them about all of the resources that people who really care about you and your your baby, slow them down, ask him those two questions and build a relationship. Because you got to remember that the Lord is indeed more offended by abortion than we are and the Lord is more interested in saving this baby than we are. So he's going to anoint you and give you the words and give you the openings to that woman's heart so that you can possibly save that baby. Do we save them all? Of course not. But if we're sincere, if we know the resources, we can get these women directed to places and the things that they need to save the baby and to provide a safe place for the woman to have her baby. Dr. Haywood, I would like you to speak directly to a man or men who may be listening to this program and are pressuring or maybe even coercing their partner into having an abortion. Talk to this man. 
And that's what we've got to start doing. We've got to say, basically, well, the men we got to talk to differently than women, obviously. We don't want to say, we want to make it seem like men and women are the same. No, they're not. Men and women aren't the same. They're different for obvious reasons. I could never endure childbirth. I'm not even going to pretend that I could. We've got to speak to these men, look them right in the eye and say, man up. You were man enough to get this woman pregnant. Now you've got your child. This is your child. This is your family. You don't kill your family. You can't look at this as just your girlfriend's pregnant and all we got to do is get an abortion and then your play toy is going to be fixed up and you can go on like life, like nothing ever happened. This is now your child. You need to take responsibility and be a father because you're a father already. We need to tell the mothers and the father, you don't become a mother or a father when the child is delivered. You were a mother or a father when the child is conceived. But nobody holds the man accountable, but we've got to start doing that. Be a man, be responsible for your behavior. And if you aren't going to be uh, the father and stand up and do that, well, at least get out of the way so that the woman can have her baby. At least help in the situation if there's an adoption to come out. At least help in a positive way. But please don't make a baby and kill it. And so we just need to be firm with these fathers, talk to men like they're men. We've feminized manhood. You've got these terms, yes. what do they call it? Toxic masculinity. Toxic masculinity? Real women want masculine men. A real woman doesn't want a sissy. And, but <laughs> right we're you are. for it. We got a bunch of the men that are tied up in all this, all this sexual stuff. They're really sissies. They don't want to be responsible for their manhood. It's as simple as that. And but we've got to be the one. It's only a man can hold a man accountable. We gotta be firm. Did you want to add anything to that, Ramona? You know, I, there is just one thing I want to add, and one of the things that I've learned throughout the years is how different um, men are from women in terms of the way, both the way that they react to a crisis pregnancy and how they respond to an abortion. Um, we oftentimes want to believe that men don't suffer from an abortion, but the truth is, is they suffer differently than women do. And we see that fallout all around us, just the same as the way they respond to a crisis pregnancy. You know, if, if men are providers and they're supposed to be protectors and providers, I think one of the, the knee jerk reactions to an unplanned pregnancy for men is that I don't have anything to provide. I don't have anything to give, you know, I'm not in a position to be a father or a good, you know, husband or whatever the case may be of this, the situation. And so, you know, when, women find themselves in a crisis pregnancy and their reaction is much different than a man's. And so I think we need to look at this more mercifully um, because oftentimes what we do is we vilify all men as, you know, the villain in this story and they're not. God created us both and he loves both men and women and we are very different from one another. And so I think that's one of the things that I've really opened my eyes to throughout the years is, is just seeing that and seeing the realities of how both men and women respond to this and knowing that they both also suffer after an abortion. And so, you know, just like women, we want to spare them from a pain of a lifetime of pain and suffering. We want to spare men as well from a, a lifetime of pain and suffering and them really emasculating themselves when they, 
you know, encourage an abortion because it's not part of who they are. They're not supposed to uh, encourage the death of their own children. They're supposed to protect them. And so abortion has emasculated a lot of men in that way because they think they have no voice. If I could tell you how many times men have said, you know, I'm just here to support her. I'm here to support her choice. And, and what I want to say, what about you? What, where's your voice? What, what do you have to say about this? And they really don't know what to say because for 50, over 50 years, the propaganda has said, you know, this is her choice and you have no say. And so like Dr. Haywood said, we, you know, really need to um, get these men to man up. We need to get them to understand that they have an important role as that protector and that provider. Um, and so many babies that have been saved over the years because the man has gone in and pulled women out of the abortion facility um, and told them, you know, don't do this. They've been able to be that hero that she was looking for all along. Um, and babies have been saved that way. So, you know, for any man who's listening, uh, I want them to know you know, that your voice is important and we don't want you to deny who you are and who you were created and meant to be, which is the protector and provider of his family. And one other thing we want to be aware of, and Planned Parenthood's founder, Margaret Sanger, was a eugenicist who felt there were certain racial stocks that should not be proliferating. But we have now, due to that eugenic philosophy, Black women experience abortion at twice the rate of their white counterparts. So abortion, in essence, is a black genocide. Now, when we look at the abortions, that's very significant. But when we talk about the other issue of not being fathers of the babies that are born, look at what's happened to the black community in the United States. 70% of black families that are started now are led by female. Look at what's happened to the culture within a lot of black communities. Chicago, St. Louis, whatever, the murder gang crime is totally out of control. Why? Because these young boys have not had men in their families to raise them, to socialize a male. A male figure is required in the family. So not only do we have a population consequence of a significantly higher abortion rate in black, we have a destructive family model of which the black mothers are doing the best they can, but these boys need fathers, and the boys are becoming criminals. They're killing each other, and it's just a horrible thing. But it's the consequence, basically, sexual dysfunction and the abortion issue. Dr. Haywood and Ramona, this question is for both of you. What's your message specifically to medical doctors who are currently doing abortions? What would you say to them? Well, I would say we need to go back to our roots and what we're, do we were called, as we've said earlier in, in this program, we were called to be physicians to do medicine. Medicine is for the purpose of improving health, comfort, healing. That's the sole purpose. We were never called to do euthanasia or kill babies. That is totally outside of the scope that we were created to do. Unfortunately, the physicians who know the truth. Many of us are just too bashful to stand up and speak the truth. The, the doctors that are doing abortions are a small minority, but we've allowed the tail to wag the dog. The righteous, many times, we're just this silent majority, so to speak, sitting around, well, I don't believe in it, but who am I to say? And, you know, that's just the way it is. Rather than making a difference and speaking out and demanding that we go back to our roots 
we don't do that. It's too passive. You know, it's the the saying how, you know, when, what happens when good people do nothing, you know, evil will prevail. Life abhors a vacuum. We've got to be the salt and the light in society. It doesn't take, God never uses an overwhelming majority of people to put forth his kingdom and to put forth his point of view. He always uses a remnant. Well, first off, God is a, he's a majority all by himself, but he usually uses a small number of people who are sold out to him to make a difference in any situation. So it's up to the believers that are the believers in whether they be a lawyer, whether they be a doctor, whether they be a nurse or whatever, to represent Jesus Christ, to represent the kingdom of God and not be bashful about it and not be intimidated, saying you just keep your faith in at home and within the church walls and you know, but don't bring your faith out out to the hospital. Don't bring it to the office. Don't bring it to the public square. But that's a lie. Christianity. We're supposed to be the salt and light in the entire environment. I'd like to ask um, each of you to respond to the person who believes that abortion is okay. Speak directly to them, Ramona. Yes, I've yet to encounter someone in my personal life who believes that abortion is okay. The majority of people that I encounter are people who believe in choice. And so if I'm speaking to someone directly who believes in choice, um, my first question is always, what does that choice entail? And oftentimes, we know that that choice involves abortion. And so then my question would be, what is happening in an abortion? Do you know what happens in an abortion? And when we really look at what's happening in abortion, then we have to go to the next step of why? Why is it okay to dismember a human being? Why is it okay in any circumstance to end the life of someone? Uh, and, and we know that, that science tells us that life begins at conception. We know that this is a unique person and an individual who will never be repeated again in all of history, right? And so the question would be, you know, why? Why do you think it is okay? And so most likely what happens at that point is we hear all of these other reasons and justifications, but we never can pinpoint, uh, at least in my own personal experience, I've yet to speak to someone who says that it is okay to take the the life of an innocent human being. I mean, it's very rare cases in which we hear that from people. And so, you know, oftentimes these discussions go round and around and around and around because no one really wants to accept and say, I am okay with the intentional killing of an innocent human being. Um, so I think to, to really get to the heart uh, of the matter, we have to really look at why someone would think, first of all, that um, that is okay to take an innocent human life at any stage, uh, whether that be you know, early or later on uh, during a pregnancy. And then even to discuss for a moment what it looks like when a baby is born. Are we, you know, at that point, are we okay with killing a baby right after birth? And we, we know that there are people who are advocating even for that. So I think it's oftentimes not necessarily a difficult discussion to have, but uh, it's difficult to to really know what to say to someone unless I know what they're going to, what their rebuttal is going to be. Um, because I've been in these conversations with people and oftentimes we go around and around and around the issue, um, but no one ever really wants to just flat out say, I'm okay 
with killing an innocent human being, usually they find all the justifications for doing so versus just saying, yes, I'm, I'm okay with the ending of, with innocent human life. Well, what I like to share with people is first off, tell them, you know, this baby, I know is probably unexpected by you. It may be a shock. You may be in school thinking that, you know, you won't be able to finish, but God put the baby there. And I think most of the people you talk to believe that, do believe in God, even though they may not be a believer. And if you believe that God put this baby here, then there's a purpose for that baby. Then I go on to share that my experience with abortion can tell them that I've been involved with abortions and I know that it's it's wrong to take the baby's life. I could share, and it's in, in the book that my wife and I wrote. I've basically bullied my girlfriend into killing my first child. Now, I regret that I don't have that boy or girl, I believe it was probably a boy, who I could call my firstborn, who I could call my son, who would be 50-something uh, something years right now, but 50-something years old. Uh, you need to tell these women that the overwhelming number of women, and you may as well say all women, regret having the abortion because down the road they recognize that they really did want that that child that they could have maybe they may have had to go to school a year longer maybe they would have had some hardship but when that baby grows up they're going to be so glad that they made the choice for life while on the other hand if they get an abortion they're going to spend the rest of their life regretting truly regretting that they took the life of their child because you see women when they get pregnant a time uh, a clock starts they know when they're going to deliver so that woman who aborts their child around the due date that they would have had they they know they should be delivering when they're sitting on a bus bench or sitting in an auditorium and they look over and see a two-year-old child and it's two years after their abortion they say, my baby would have been two years old. They go to a high school graduation 18 years after they got an abortion, and they say, wow, my baby would have been graduating from high school, and I would have been there in the audience, but I aborted my baby. You see, we've got to let, let these women understand that the baby has a purpose, and there's a purpose for every single life, even though it doesn't seem like it at the time, but God put the baby there to prove that, okay, you work to get the baby there. Yes, I make all life, but it's going to work out. It's going to work out. There's a purpose for every life, and where there's, where there's life, there's hope. When you take away life, that brings sorrow and pain. Good point. Good point. And I've said it time and time again, that we need to look upon our adversaries with love because a lot of them have come to the light side, away from the dark side, and are our best ambassadors for life. And you two are very good examples of that. And we thank you for being bold enough to listening to the whispers of the Holy Spirit, answering him and joining to be on his side. Amen. So thank you. Thanks for having me. You know, Brad, once again, 
it's been such a blessing to see the way that God will take people who have a, a colorful history, a background, and he'll use them to further his kingdom. Such a blessing those two have become beacons of light in defense of life, and they have such a unique perspective, and I'm sure that they can connect with people on a way that you know many of us may not be able to because of their story, and it's just so wonderful to have that that insight from our guests. Yeah, and I don't think people can argue with their stories. I mean, that is their story, and it's pretty hard to say you're lying or you're making stuff up. I think that the feminists should be outraged about what was said today. Where are they? Vulnerable women are being used and abused by the abortion industry. They're lied to, and feminists should be raising up and shouting from the rooftops that women are being victimized by the abortion industry. And the fact that they are stone dead silent really makes me angry. And that's a question I'd like others to contemplate too. Where are the feminists when women are being abused? Well, it's very telling because these women are being abused. They're being abused in many cases multiple times because these Planned Parenthood facilities and other abortionists, they're not interested in what's best for that woman. They're only interested in how they can best make a quick buck. How can they profit off of a woman who's in many cases a very stressful, a very scary situation in her life, and they sashay on in there like a snake oil salesman telling her a whole bunch of lies and then cashing out and they run off. And we heard it from our guests. They leave them to dry. If a woman is traumatized, as many of them are after her abortion, and they and you know she goes back to this facility and she wants some help with the trauma that they just caused her, they give her a cold shoulder. They couldn't possibly care less. Make oil salesman. I like that, Victor. <laughs> well, to our listeners out there, we have an abundance of free resources on our website, lifeissues.org, including resources from today's program, things that you can share with your friends and family, help shine some light on the ugly underbelly of abortion, their connections to sex trafficking, their racist agenda, as well as resources that you can uh, share with people about 40 Days for Life and books from our wonderful guests that we had on. In addition, I want to encourage you to join the Life Defenders today. Be a daily part of our work to save babies and continue to promote a culture of life across America. Giving monthly in any amount is a tremendous commitment to the pro-life movement, one that you will not regret. We can't all be sidewalk counselors. We can't all share our personal stories on a big stage, but what we can do is support vital pro-life education through a monthly donation. Monthly giving helps us reach more persuadable people with a pro-life message, and monthly giving enables the creation of this very program. Help us do more for the babies by becoming a life defender today you can easily sign up on our website, lifeissues.org. While you're there, be sure to let us know what you thought about today's program and tell us what topics you'd like to see us cover in the future. Once again, that's lifeissues.org. Be sure to tune in next week for another Straight Talk on Life Issues. <laughs>